I thank God for all who have led us in worship today, and we are continuing a sermon series called Galatians Afresh. We are seeking to take a fresh look at Paul's ancient letter to the Galatians. And since we're celebrating the Lord's Supper today, also known as Holy Communion, I thought we would look at a passage in Galatians that pertains to the table. So I want to draw your attention to Galatians 2, 11 through 14. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is Family Style Seating. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Back in 2007, my friend Alan and I went to eat lunch at a Nashville restaurant called Monell's. Monell's features fine southern cooking served family style. Instead of sitting at a small table with your party, you sit at a large table with other customers who happen to be there and you pass around a basket of fried chicken and a big bowl of green beans and you each Take a helping for your plate, much like you would at a dinner at home. Alan and I ended up sitting with a group of women, all of whom were older than us and all of whom were African American. Due to the family style seating, here were two white men in our 20s, eating with three black women in their 70s and all enjoying a delightful meal together and lovely conversation as well. As we were chatting and laughing and passing the food around, one of the ladies remarked, you know, the last time I was in Nashville, you and I would not have been allowed to sit at this table together. I immediately felt the weight of the moment, even as the meal continued with glad thanksgiving that things had changed since then. She was referring to former times in the Jim Crow South when restaurants refused to serve black people and signs in the windows said, whites only. During this time, some restaurants would serve persons of color, but only for carryout. 
not at the table and not at the same lunch counter with whites. Contrary to common assumption, segregating dining patterns were not limited to the South. California resident Sylvia Mendez recalls an instance from decades ago when she and her parents sat down in a California restaurant. The waitress ignored them for quite a long time, so her father finally asked, Miss, why aren't we being served? The waitress replied, well, we don't serve Mexicans here. So Mrs. Mendez's family had to leave. Given these widespread restaurant policies, a key aspect of the civil rights movement was the sit-ins, organized nonviolent demonstrations in which persons of color sat down at white-only lunch counters and restaurants to demand equal treatment. A famous sit-in took place in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960. Other sit-ins took place in Nashville, Tennessee, Little Rock, Arkansas, here in Richmond, Virginia, and in other locales. People held up signs that said, end lunch counter discrimination. And over time, progress was made. Without these sit-ins, who knows if the rules at restaurants ever would have changed. The table has long been an epicenter of division between various social groups. In New Testament times, table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles was quite the controversial issue. Jews were people who worshiped the God of Israel and read the scriptures we call the Old Testament. Gentiles were everybody else, Greeks, Romans, and so on. Although Old Testament law does not prohibit Jews from eating with Gentiles, it contains stipulations regulating what Jews are allowed to eat in order to distinguish them from Gentiles. Foods such as pork and shellfish, for example, are designated as unclean in the Old Testament law. Meat associated with idol worship and meat that has not been cooked thoroughly enough to remove the blood of the animal are also prohibited. Theoretically speaking, an observant Jew could eat kosher food at the same table with Gentiles without becoming defiled, but practically speaking, there was a widespread assumption that eating at the same table with Gentiles could bring defilement. This assumption is evident in ancient Jewish literature. For example, the letter of Aristius from the second century BCE says, to prevent our being perverted by contact with others or by mixing with bad influences, Moses hedged us in on all sides with strict observances connected with meat and drink. The ancient book of Jubilees adds, eat not with them for their works are unclean. As a result, the Roman historian Tacitus observed that first century Jews ate separately from other peoples. Essentially, some first century Jewish persons thought that it would compromise their holiness if they ate with Gentiles. 
For Christians, however, Jesus Christ is the paradigm, and his brand of holiness involves fellowship with those who are ethnically and culturally different, such as the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. His brand of holiness also involves a table fellowship with notorious sinners such as Levi and friends in Luke chapter 5. According to Jesus' example, risking one's own set-apartness to build relationships with people who are different is holier than withdrawing from others in order to guard one's own set-apartness. Holiness, therefore, is not an exercise in disassociation, but an exercise in inclusive love. Paul understood the situation in Antioch similarly. Evidently, Peter, a Jewish Christian, had made a habit of eating with Gentile Christians, which was great. But when James sent a group of Jewish Christians from Jerusalem over to Antioch, this group pressured Peter to stop eating with the Gentile Christians. And Peter caved. This is the same Peter who denied even knowing Christ three times after the crucifixion. So I suppose it should come as no surprise to us that he collapsed yet again under pressure. Paul could hear the cock crowing every time Peter refused to join the Gentile Christians for dinner. It's almost as if Peter and the Jewish Christians put up a sign at their table saying, Jewish Christians only, while Paul was holding a sign saying, end dinner table discrimination. Paul was advocating for the church to practice family-style dining, or at least family-style seating, much like that of Monell's, where people from all walks of life sit together around the same table, even if one chooses to eat this and another chooses to eat that. Paul had no problem with the Jewish Christians avoiding things that the Old Testament law said they should avoid as long as they didn't hold the Gentile Christians to those same rules. You see, Christians were free to have different diets. Paul was fine if one person had the pork barbecue and another abstained. Paul was fine if somebody ate the shrimp cocktail and another declined. But he wanted everybody fellowshipping together around the table, regardless of race, ethnicity, background, or culture. All of this pertained to the Lord's Supper as well. Since Paul's churches celebrated the Lord's Supper, in combination with a fellowship meal. It appears that Peter and the other Jewish Christians were neither eating dinner with nor sharing the Lord's Supper with the Gentile Christians in Antioch. This was no trifling matter the way God's table had become a point of division. In fact, Paul describes Peter's actions by using the Greek term hypocrisy, which is related to the English word hypocrisy. The Greek term referred to an actor in a play, a person who pretended to be somebody else. Paul charged 
Peter with play acting, pretending to be somebody else, hypocrisy, because he ate with Gentile Christians regularly and quite happily until Jewish Christians from Jerusalem showed up, at which time Peter withdrew from the Gentiles and ate with Jewish Christians only. Suddenly, Peter was too good to eat with the Gentiles anymore. For this offense, Paul called Peter out in front of everybody. (laughs) He had to be confronted because he was misrepresenting the gospel truth that faith in Christ alone is sufficient for salvation and full incorporation into God's church. As Paul says later in Galatians 2, if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. In other words, If Gentile Christians had to adopt Jewish food laws in order to be fully accepted at the Lord's table, then Christ would have died for nothing, and faith would be placed in the law rather than in Jesus, and salvation would come through works of the Old Testament rather than through trusting Jesus Christ. This was altogether unacceptable to Paul. Notice in verse 14 that he says, Peter and the other Jerusalem Christians were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. In this passage, truth is not so much espoused as embodied. The gospel is not so much believed as enacted. In Paul's mind, table fellowship between Christians of different cultures is essential, not just to social ethics, but to gospel faith. We embrace and embody the truth of the gospel when we fellowship with people who are different. When I was pastoring the First Baptist Church of Valdez, North Carolina, we assisted in planting a new Spanish mission church that met each weekend in our chapel. One Saturday, we and our new Spanish mission church hosted in our sanctuary a large gathering of Spanish-speaking churches from all over the region. And afterwards, there was a huge fellowship meal. The fellowship hall was packed out. I mean, standing room only. Many of the people were from Guatemala and Mexico, and they made the best tamales I have ever put in my mouth. I wasn't the only white person there. There were others scattered among the crowd. One white man who had come from out of town came all the way across the fellowship hall and walked over to me and said, Pastor, I just want to thank your church for opening your doors. These people are good people. Where I live, some people don't want them around. But they're good people. We talked for a moment before returning to our respective tables where kids were laughing and seniors were smiling, where English and Spanish intermingled in the air and where Guatemalan folks and white folks all ate together. Had Paul been at our church that day, he would have been just as interested in the fellowship meal as the worship service. His point is that the gospel is not merely a theological 
principle, but also a social practice. Social ethics are not just implied by the gospel. They are intrinsic to the gospel. The truth of the gospel is not limited to a properly stated list of doctrines or a rightly told story about Christ. It includes social righteousness. It's almost as if Paul was saying to the Galatians, can't you see that if Christ died for all peoples on the cross, then there are no divisions or hierarchies among social groups? Can't you see that if God is the God of all peoples, then the Lord's table should be equally welcoming to all peoples? The lack of table fellowship between Christians of different cultures was not just a social problem, it was a crisis of truth. As Bible scholar Richard Hayes puts it, does the leg say to the arm, you sit at that table and I'll sit at this one? Does the ear say to the eye, uh, you sit on this side of the cafeteria and I'll sit on that side. Neither should the Jewish Christian say to the Gentile Christian, you sit over there and I'll sit over here, for you are all members of one body in Christ. Peter was Jewish by heritage before he became a Christ follower, like Paul was, and so Paul was challenging Peter to elevate his identity in Christ above his other identity markers, even when it caused him fear, and to recognize that he and Gentile Christians shared far more in common than in contrast. Even if Christ were all they had in common, Christ would outweigh any dividing factor. Unity in Christ does not remove racial or cultural or linguistic distinctions. It transcends them. Christians can eat at the same table no matter what other identity markers may differentiate us from one another. Back in 2002 when I was a divinity school student in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, I did an internship in nearby Greensboro, North Carolina at a Disciples of Christ church that was predominantly African American. For the first time in my life, I found myself worshiping weekly in a congregation in which I was in the minority. Early in the internship, it was arranged for me to have lunch with one of the mothers of the church. So one Sunday after worship, I went with Mother Ambrose to her apartment for lunch. Mother Ambrose was in her 70s, and she was a stalwart of this church. She was present every Sunday in worship and admired as a spiritual leader in the congregation. As she warmly welcomed me into her home, the first thing I saw was a striking painting of the Lord's Supper on her wall. It was a large, beautiful painting. I had seen images of the Lord's Supper before, but in this painting, 
Jesus and the disciples were all black. The image gave me pause because in the paintings and images of the Lord's Supper that I was familiar with, Jesus and the disciples were portrayed as white. I realized in that moment that Jesus and his original followers all had darker skin than mine since they were first century Jews living in ancient Palestine. I also recognized that in view of the long history of the gospel, I'm late to the party as a Gentile of European ancestry. If not for Jewish Christians welcoming Gentile Christians to the Lord's table as Paul so adamantly urged them to, I never would have been part of Christ's church. Mother Ambrose showed me to her table and invited me to take a seat. She led us in prayer and then began to pass the food as we enjoyed the meal with members of her family. I imagine Mother Ambrose had faced massive injustice there in Greensboro during Jim Crow. I imagine she remembered the very day when the Greensboro Four sat down at Woolworth's lunch counter to peacefully demand service. I imagine she remembered decades of her life when people who look like me marginalized her and her family by prohibiting them from sitting down at restaurant tables and by barring them from the Lord's table at many churches. And yet, here she was welcoming me, a young white man, into her home for Sunday lunch at her table, alongside members of her family. At Mother Ambrose's table, the fellowship was warm. The hospitality was abundant. The food was delicious, and the faith was authentic. There was one table for us all, with family-style dining, and family-style seating, and it felt a lot like Holy Communion. I learned a great deal in my three years of divinity school, but it was at Mother Ambrose's apartment that I most clearly learned the truth of the gospel. On this All Saints Sunday, I thank God for Mother Ambrose and for all the saints who have stretched the hospitality of God's table a bit wider in honor of the Savior who welcomes us all. Amen.